Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Why It Matters. My name is Tracy Kronzak. I'm the Director of Innovation here at Now It Matters. And I am joined, as always, by my stalwart companion, Tim. Hey, how's it going? Say hi, Gracie. (laughs) (laughs) Tim didn't get that. That was a George Burns joke at one point. I did not get that. And I think you've said it before. And I was also thrown off because I actually don't know what the word stalwart means. You know, you use it every time, and I'm still okay. I mean, it's got the word wart in it, which is not like I, I'm just saying, like, anyway. So, yeah, thank you. I am your stalwart companion, then steadfast, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll think, I, even warts and all is fine. I can think I, I'll blocky, think like you know, think like you right. know, like in Dungeons and Dragons, you have like elves. You have humans and you have dwarves and then you have a bunch of other things like humans are kind of like the chaos machines in that model. Elves are sort of the very elegant sort of prince and princess race. And then dwarves. Dwarves are very stalwart. They're always there. They perform handily and they're kind of blocky. They're great at a sprint, too. Yeah, I'll I'll totally. There you go. (laughs) I love it. Thanks for the thanks for the word lesson. Um, I love that you're like just nodding like you know what we're talking about, which I hope you do. <laughs> um, yeah. I would love to introduce our guest. I have been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Uh, Kate, I would love to have you just say who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about your background and story, because I think we're at a moment in our world where a lot of the things that you care about are things that are going to be incredibly important for the nonprofit ecosystem in the next 10 years. Thank you. My name is Kate Ruff. I am an assistant professor of accounting at the Splott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. And there I lead a project called the Common Approach to Impact Measurement that is principally funded by the Government of Canada. I have been recently learning a lot about Dungeons and Dragons because of my son, and I always choose the character of the dwarf. All right. Because they're killer. That's that's amazing. Okay. Um, So there's a few answers to how I got into this space. Um, I will start with how I ended up with a PhD in accounting as an accounting professor without having ever been an accountant. So this will start the story after I have a deep interest in understanding impact measurement and how to improve it. That interest is already fostered. Uh, I've been working in impact measurement, doing consulting around impact measurement, thinking a lot about standards and hearing all the problems about why we can never have a standard for impact measurement, including companies or uh, charities and not-for-profits and social purpose organizations are too diverse it's too subjective, it would favor some organizations over others, these problems. And then I was reading The Economist, I've long since forgotten everything except the phrase before there were income statements. And Mm. I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, we invented this, eh? I had often imagined a world before electricity. I love these like um, living museum type places where you can go and watch people forge iron and uh, people in costumes selling quaint things like you know recreated villages i love things you've like just that. described ren fair down here in the states <laughs> i i this will be my retirement career i am going to be in full costume living in one of these villages uh but i so are, is that as a blacksmith i mean we're uh, i know we're going to get questions about it 
Yeah, well, I, I, I'm actually hoping there can be like the impact measurement accountant person in that village, but I haven't <laughs> quite figured that piece out. So maybe just the shopkeeper. Uh, we'll see. The, there's, the, a, there's a lot the of- The town impact crier. Here you, yeah, here you. I don't think it's Three realistic, points. is it? We're going to lose some realism there. Uh, but I had never considered that humans invented accounting. And so after, you know, mid-career, already done sort of my master's work, I got really fascinated by how accounting got created and how um, accounting became a global standard. And as I studied this, I ended up as a hobby, five basements down at Harvard University. I was living in Boston, outside Boston at the time, reading transcripts from the House of Commons in the UK in the 1840s and listening to businessman after businessman, because indeed they were men, talking about all the reasons you could never standardize financial accounting because companies were too diverse, because it was too subjective, because it would favor some companies over other companies. And then what I learned in that process is that we never actually solved those problems. We just got better at mitigating them and we also got more comfortable with it. And so I started on an obsession of this concept of a flexible standard for impact measurement, which was very different than what I'd seen in the past. Do you, I will just end to pause my right there, story is, there. Yeah. Are, um, I, I am suddenly completely interested in that. I remember uh, in an econ class, maybe it was, I don't remember, anyway, um, learning about when they started double entry bookkeeping, which was centuries before that, and the power of that. And so just connecting like all of that work to uh, to in income statements was, do you feel like that is a flexible standard or an yes. inflexible standard? Yes, so very much people who study accounting understand the power of accounting is what we call its plasticity. Plasticity is a word that can be used in biology. It explains how a butterfly, a single butterfly lays different eggs in different temperatures. The eggs are objectively different, but they are still the eggs of a particular species of butterfly or a particular tree an oak tree will grow leaves that are thicker and greener and larger in particular wind, sun, rain conditions. And that same tree will grow slightly different leaves in a different setting, uh, objectively different, but also the same. So plasticity is this notion that things can be different, but the same. Uh, in physics, it means something is plastic. It means it bends without breaking. So again, you've got this notion of different, but not separate. And we so we use this word plasticity in accounting to talk about how accounting standards have been so successful because of their ability to be different in different industries, different companies, different countries. So when you look at IFRS, IFRS manifests slightly different in different countries. Mm -hmm. um, and you can even get things like very technical terms around the costing of a particular product. And they've done studies about how the concept is the same, but the, 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 the technical application will vary a little bit. And we have strategies to deal with this, including what I like to call the big collective shrug, where, you know, you measure inventory this way, you measure inventory that way. We've got auditors and training to assume you're choosing a reasonable strategy that you're not picking a, a nefarious method. And it's different methods and it's reasonable for your context. Okay, moving on, inventory, and we're going to call it the same. And so we do this. It's interesting because even inside of inventory, like if you're doing 
FIFO or what is it, LIFO? Um, uh, yeah, and, um, weighted average would be a good example, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All of those actually are examples of plasticity because exactly. like there is a standard around how it's done different, but that is really interesting. What um, I, you can really weasel deep in that. Like even with yeah, yeah. FIFO, you can go deep into, particularly for a manufacturing organization, like how they calculate the cost of product that's in progress and product that's made and how they estimate net realizable value. Like there are many places where the particular calculation will change from ent entity to entity, all reasonable, right? We're assuming this is not nefarious. This is not about like, uh, cheating the system. Well, Just I was going to say, what I wanted to ask is this isn't about rigging the books. This is about conforming everyday operations to a accountability standard that creates a uniform perspective on what the heck's going on in the economy. Yeah. So if you want more history of accounting, uh, when account, so there was a time accounting historians, historians describe how everyone was doing double entry bookkeeping, like you've said. Tim, but you couldn't compare a company to company at the same time, or even a single company for a number of years, right? So it was very fuzzy. And investors said, if the problem is too much variation, what we need is rigidity. And they tried to make everything uniform. And what they learned is that information wasn't useful because if you impose a particular way of measuring inventory on every company, the number that comes out is arithmetically consistent, but meaningfully odd, right? So there are different. Yes. Very we talk about reasons. this in statistics a little talk bit, right? Okay. Yeah. Tell me, Tracy. Well, no, I was going to say when I studied statistics, it's the difference between something being like statistically significant versus actually meaningful. And, and there's two ways of looking at data. And I can't remember the example they used anymore from class because that was X number of years ago, but it was like, oh, we've correlated this person group behavior to this weird little thing over here. And it matches 95% of the time. It is statistically significant. But in fact, what you're doing is finding statistical significance between two unrelated sets of actions. You know, that's kind of how that translates over to something that I can grok because that, that, that I basically just said everything I know about economics and numbers right there. <laughs> going to see if I can. I wanted to ask Kate while you're pulling up the what you're yeah. pulling up. Um, something that fascinates me about everything that you just said is that one term that has always stuck with me from my semi rudimentary economics education, uh, true story, my economics professor was a Nobel laureate. Uh, and she looked at me and basically called me unteachable in economics. <laughs> like she was like, Tracy, you're just not going to get this. And I'm like, okay, thank you, professor. Um, she came from a long line of economic professors, by the way. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Um, but uh, what I wanted to ask was the term that sticks with me always is inefficiency or economic inefficiency. And what this creates is a binary choice between the things that fit the economic system and those things that are called externalities or inefficiencies to the system. 
And those things are always written off. They're not solved for to, to what you were talking about. It's like, we don't solve for externalities. We don't solve for inefficiencies. We accept them. And the journey of 2020 has been saying, hey, actually, these inefficiencies are things that needed solving for in the first place and never did to exactly your point. I mean, is that how you're looking at it? I mean, I love this question. So I wear two hats as I introduce myself. There's the common approach to impact measurement, and then there's me as a researcher. And the common approach doesn't really play in that space that you just described, but I get obsessed and excited as a researcher about that space. So um, sociologists that study economics, so that's not economists studying economics, it's sociologists studying economics, talk about how that externality is socially constructed and they prefer the word overflow and the word overflow highlights two things one is we need a boundary somewhere or we will break our calculation cannot work if we try to include everything that is impossible everything is connected at some point you got to draw your line and be like this is in and this is out and so by calling it an overflow it's highlighting that We've chosen these moments to spill out of our box, but we had to create a box somewhere. So one of the research papers um, I'm working on right now actually is looking to understand how as we are pushing in, in financial accounting, as we are pushing that overflow line from financial accounting into the environmental social governance moments, we are bumping up against new overflows. And the new overflows that I think we're bumping up against is who gets to decide who and what matters. So we're, we're coming to this world where, hey, you should include social environmental governance metrics in your annual reporting, dear company. And there seems to be a, a, a shift in zeitgeist that I would say most people would agree with this now, that these are relevant pieces of information, if not for the good of the world, they actually help you inform your financial understanding of the company, right? So I think there's consensus that yes, we should be expanding our understanding and measures of corporations from just financial to this environmental social governance piece of data. But now which measures are we gonna pay attention to? And that's where when you look carefully at what's being pulled into the box, we are hearing the opinions of financial markets and not the opinions of people whose lives are most affected. So a new overflow is being created that is will be, I think, the new battleground or the new socially constructed tension of what makes a good and complete account. So yes, I love this question of externalized and I love the idea that it's playing with the idea that we as a society choose it, which also invites the question, this is a place for activists and social movements to change it, right? Like it's not something we have to live with and take as given, it's something we get to play with. The, the sort of mind palace that you just created on this where, you know, looking at what we consider to be hard objective things, economics, as a social construct, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone quite articulate the A to B on that the way that you just did. Uh, it opens up so many questions in my own head around, well, if we look at economics as a social construct, um, I'm going to connect this to something that you literally just said, and that is that therefore means the power and privilege of our society gets to define these objective measurements. And therefore, 
if the journey of our lives as activism activists has been unpicking power and privilege, then what we're actually seeing is a collision between activism and economy that isn't what we think it is, right? It isn't this binary debate of like capitalism versus socialism or like democracy versus totalitarianism, which was, by the way, that's the grid down here in the United States. I mean, good yeah. Lord. Um, leaving my know. arena of expertise, but I'm enjoying the conversation. Well, yeah. and so therefore, you know, what breaks through that mold? What, what, what makes something that is overflow profitable in a way that a corporation can digest it and not have to look at a group of folks and be like, that's a lovely thing for you to agitate about, but we actually are beholden to shareholders. Okay, so we are really in very fun areas. So we're talking now about corporations and profit and the role that environmental social governance could play in shaping profit. And again, we can come back to accounting being a something society created. And already there are all sorts of things that are morally repugnant yeah. that you cannot do. And you, we, you cannot make a profit on these things. And some of them are law and some of them are not law, but held to be true. And so another thing that uh, a co colleague and I have talked about was how activists have shaped what is possible to make a profit from through highlighting relations in accounting. So, so these are activists like Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors at Borders, um, people interested in um, regulation around the seal hunt, for example, or going back to the 1800s, understanding slavery and the sugar trade. And in all these cases, these activists used accounting and numbers to try and show relationships between the price of things, the consumer, the um, supply chain, to connect the consumer to the, the morally repugnant thing that was being done. And they actually changed what company, reg, regu, regulation that changes what companies can make a profit from. So to me, where does measurement come into this? Measurement is part of a transparency that allows others to create what we call counter accounts of what's happening in the company. And those counter accounts can be part of activism to help mobilize society around that moral outrage that incites action. And that action then changes norms in society about what companies do. And these have changed over time about what is acceptable and unacceptable. And I hope they will continue to change. And so that's not really changing the calculation of profit so much as the milieu in which people are free to act within the social contract and shifting that social contract of good and evil over time. I think it's slow work, but I know it's slow work. Uh, but I have hope that we are moving in a trajectory that is shaping things positively. That it's interesting you're raising that. Um, when I was st studying development economics, um, I mean, this is where, like, talk about power and privilege, deciding for the world what's happening. The you know, in the '60s, '50s, and '60s, IMF, World Bank was very instrumental in deciding 
what social norms needed to adjust in order for uh, in order for development to happen. And in fairly reckless ways, I was quick to point out to my professor who was uh, a, a typical uh, economist and was like, oh, I don't care about that. I just, here's what happened and here's the numbers behind it. Like just straight, straight up like that. Um, super interesting guy actually. But all that to say, when I saw like, okay, one of the things that, you know, uh, developed world was saying to the undeveloped world is things like until you're able to keep your own wealth and not share it with your tribe or family, we will not see development happen in your, you know, in, in a developing country. And so, you know, the breakdown of familial ties and trust and, and taking care of each other was considered a positive step towards development for an economy. Um, and so like that, that was just very surprising to me to just see all like just that starkly, like this is what happens. And, and you know, was largely successful at creating some of those things, which I, I have a lot of questions about how positive that actually was. I hear you relating that kind of a moment to the moment that we're in now and saying like, we're in a decisive moment where these things are getting decided, just like, you know, standards around income. Um, I think I have not framed it quite that way before, but that, that creates some excitement and some fear around what this moment can be about. Um, am I on the right track? Is that how you think of it? Does that make sense? Um, is that how you describe yeah. the moment? Yeah, when I think about, um how we understand corporate behavior. So that's, I think, what we're talking about now, which is a bit different than understanding, we can shift into sort of the kind of stuff the common approach does later. But when we think about corporate, how we understand corporate behavior, a few metrics are bubbling up as the key metrics. And by and large, the people that have decided that, I believe are well-intended, I believe they are working on their best knowledge, I believe they, they want the world to be better, and. But the key is, is that it's a certain group of people that is not very diverse. And what they decide is going to be sedimented into our systems yes. that decide who matters. And you can take quite a complex history of measurement. And then it comes down to these 40 indicators that companies are going to measure. And then an analyst, who I'm not going to name, but there are several large stock market analysts, are going to take those 40 indicators and crunch them through an algorithm that weights them, that either they're all mm. equally important or that environment is more important than labor rights or labor rights are more important than environment, whatever. There's gonna be some weighting to distill this down to a five-star rating or a score out of three. Yep. And at this point, you have very few people where we've got the valuation of a company's social and environmental performance tied in closely to a set of moral values that is being chosen from a very narrow and small yeah. group of people without participation or even a front door of like, how, who would I talk to if I object to this and want to change mm -hmm. it? Like it's yeah. not, there's no process, there's no electorate, there's no democracy, right. there's no. So I do think that at this moment, we want to celebrate that the world is expanding past financial metrics. Hold on to that, that is good and pay very careful attention to our systems that are setting these standards 
to ensure there's a good community around them that is accountable or has mechanisms of communication to a broad set of people so that these accounts are not set by such a narrow group of people. And I'm gonna introduce one more idea. I'm gonna, well, the idea I wanna introduce is polyvocal accounts, which is the power of accounts to tell multiple conflicting stories. And I think there is another really key idea we wanna bubble up. I don't know if anyone really knows how to produce a polyvocal account right now. What I, what I- This is what's I, otherwise known as a dual bottom line. No, actually, no. the okay. line says, here's your social number, your environment number, and your financial number, right? So you get three things. This is the truth, social truth. This is your environmental truth, and this is your governance truth, and here's your financial truth, right? You get these Got four it. things. Got it. But if I, and then overall, but if um, social encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses me as a worker in Canada, but it might also encompass the experience of a worker in the supply chain in another country distant from here. And we might have very different relationships with this company. I might be experiencing um, a great positive LBGTQ environment and fabulous paid parental leave. And this other person through the supply chain might be experiencing very horrendous conditions. Both of those truths are truths. And it is very difficult to objectively distill that down to four out of 10, eight out of 10. So a polyvocal account would allow conflicting stories of social progress or, or environmental progress to be made. So you would hear both those accounts in a, in a complex, rich way without trying to build down to a single consensus view on what is the social performance of this company. You would allow that mix to exist. And I don't yet, I don't think anyone knows how to do that. I do know there's a lot of people thinking that that is the next step in properly understanding properly limiting it so that our more one person's moral values don't produce the, the numeric value. I was about to say, you know, Wall Street is essentially trying to get one number, right, to look at. But then when I think about it, actually they like they've solved this in on the financials by having a whole lot of different measurements, some that tell like the difference between like a quick ratio and an acid test ratio, for example, like I can't tell you the difference because they seem so similar. And I know what an acid test is, number. but I don't think it's what you're thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I wonder like um, that that's an interesting, essentially what you're saying is you can aggregate those up, but you have to see, you have to have ways of actually telling more in-depth stories. Um, and that that is a challenge, right? Like how do you balance aggregation, the the top line story with all of the conflicting information that go into that aggregation down below that? And that's actually not different than what already happens in accounting to your point about flexibility. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. This is also about priority though, right? Like, so what you've just articulated is a very cogent, connection between some of the arguments that are coming, you know, onto the altar of corporate America, uh, corporate life around like who is in the room and how, right? And what you've just articulated is saying like, it's not just about diversity of thought, which is something we already know. It's about 
participation in reprioritization of what we consider to be norms. And, you know, how I'm putting that together is I'm saying this is beautiful, but ah, Kate, at the end of the day, if you want to create a polyvocal account, doesn't that like make my marketing department want to pull their hair out? Because if you look at something, what's going on right now and today at the time of recording, there is a unionizing effort happening by line employees in Georgia at Amazon at a company that is widely considered to be one of the best quote unquote companies to work for in technology. These are two truths that are happening at the same time. Near as I saw in the news, Amazon just shut down the unionizing effort and put a beautiful spin on it. Like this is a win for all our employees. How do we break that? Like, like, cause marketing always wins, you know? Yeah. I think that's above my pay grade. It's a good question. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it doesn't always win. Here's what I, here's what I want to say back to that one. And this connects to common approach, which is that uh, I was so excited, Kate, when I first met you and we had our first conversation to realize that you're the, the way that you approach this question of impact uh, comes with a, an accounting background, not a marketing background. Because the storytelling that we need to make from this is important. And I'm growing in my awareness of how important. So absolutely does need to happen. But it, has, it can't just recreate the uh, corporate social responsibility model that was really based on kind of a marketing, like a, a marketing model. It needs to actually be based on the numbers. And to the point on marketing, it doesn't always win because when you start looking at how people purchase stock, it is much more about the financials than the marketing. Now you can market financials and, and there's a version of that, but at the end of the day, uh, really good analysts are looking at core numbers to make those decisions. Um, and, and I think that that's important to understand. Um, one, one other thought on that as, as we start to shift towards common approach um, is what, what you said I think would be easy to miss. And I, and I think this is actually a question. Um, when the income statements were getting codified um, and, and you know, all, all of that was happening, there is what worked in the long run was not just a rigid here's how it has to be. I'm guessing underneath that, what was going on is that until it actually helped individuals, companies understand their own selves, it wasn't useful and so they wouldn't participate. And so until it helped them accomplish their goals, it wasn't useful enough to adopt. When it became useful because it told them their story, their way, then it became something you could aggregate. Is that the is that what happened next in that story? So that's a really good question that I think I don't think there's been sort of enough body of research on that particular point to say for sure yes or for sure no. But if I draw on the research I've read, companies were actually getting a lot of value out of the way they were doing accounting for their own purposes and they didn't have much need to harmonize with other people. It was the analysts in the stock market that wanted more consistency. 
And so my hypothesis based on the research I've read is that it was the emergence of an analyst profession that enabled accounting to become more complex. And now this, there's a group of people who can study this and debate what it means. And so accounting doesn't have to be simple enough to give an answer to the investor, right? So the investor doesn't look at the financial statement and have a binary, I invest, I sell, or I don't invest, which is actually what we want of our impact measurement, right? We want our impact measurement to be so obvious that we can look at these numbers and be like, good, bad. Whereas if an accounting, if, we, if the accounting was so straightforward that you could look at those numbers and know exactly what to do with your financial investments, there's a whole industry that would collapse. Yep. Interpreting financial statements into knowledge takes a lot of people a lot of time. And so I think for impact measurement, co corporate and charitable, we're gonna need to see an emergence of analysts who are willing to spend the time to read complex statements and distill that for people taking, making decisions. And then the people making decisions are gonna to have to find the analysts they trust and believe in or who have um, a value set that resonates with them. Uh, I think that's so, and, and I think with financial accounting, it was the emergence of the CFA as a profession that mm. really catalyzed um, a, a different kind of accounting strategy. It could I, also I love that market. concept of professionalizing yeah. a new type of analysis. That said, Jim, I'm going to make a snarky comment in response to you, and it's going to be a marketing comment. And that is, I don't know, that sounds like just a bunch of socialism to me, Tim. Just socialism, socialism. It's socialism. America is not socialist. We're not socialists like that, Tim. But I want to actually use that as a pivot to something that is more profound in my mind. And that is, so part of my background many years ago when I was in college was studying the transition of Eastern European states, both economically and politically. And making these kinds of shifts Kate, everything you're talking about is an organic emergence, right? The emergence of a new type of professional, the emergence of new types of standards. But what I also know to be true is there were a number of experiments, both politically and economically, that were essentially running in real time in Eastern Europe in that period. And man, the outcomes were everything from like, yay, this is super successful, and now we're a member of the European Union, to you know, this radically tanked our economy, put our people through like a serious amount of poverty and ultimately made us into an authoritarian state. Like that's the gamut of outcomes from that time in, in, in our global history. So making this kind of shift, my question is, what's your estimate on that kind of transition time that it's going to realistically take for this to crystallize in a manner that won't produce one of those extremes. And that is something that you've both alluded to. And that is, oh God, we're just gonna tank everything that's here and that's going to create its own chaos. Okay, so let me understand. First of all, Tracy, what a cool background. Uh, oh, I thanks. would like I... to really now interview you after this is done and learn all about that. That sounds amazing. Uh, I think the question is how long is it going to take before there is a more just and complete accounting for corporate performance? Yeah, that also doesn't produce sort of falling off a cliff, right? 
And I think that's critical to a lot of corporations is even if there's a values alignment, there is a fear that there's going to be an economic failure before there will be an economic success in pursuit of these. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm, I don't have any kind of special knowledge that would make me a good person to participate on it. But my gut says um, people in power are pretty good at making sure there's not a financial tanking. Like, I don't uh, know about that, I, but sure. Well, or they do, they tank it themselves. But I don't imagine, um, I think it's just going to be a long two mm. steps forward, one step back, three steps back, one step forward, five steps back, six steps forward, whatever it is. I think it's going to be a long journey. I'm not sure we'll ever know we reached our destination. Many would say that with the shift toward ESG accounting that's emerging now, that you know this was the goal that many people set out to in the 1970s, 50 years later, we've arrived, but new problems present themselves. So now we don't, doesn't feel good enough to me and maybe to others. So I don't know if, I don't know if we'll ever arrive. And I, I kind of doubt there will be a spectacular moment of utopia or dystopia or sort of economy tanking or economy thriving as a result of this. It just yeah, I don't see in the range of outcomes, I don't see this being in line with what you're talking about historically um, that way because it doesn't, it's an additive, like it's not messing with the entire economy. What it's doing is it's adding another layer that is, if anything, taking into account that scarcity of climate and scarcity of resources is now being affected by climate change in a way that is so obvious to everybody now that we need a way to account for it. And businesses are recognizing that there's now a price premium related to the market alignment that they have on either like where they align politically, where they align on environment. And so there's a, an actual price outcome of over 25%, I think, where people will pay up to like, I think it's between 25 and 30% more for an item that aligns with, uh, where a brand aligns with their views on what they think should happen with the world. So like that creates actual business objectives for being additive and adding adding these measures on. I don't like, you know, if, if this whole idea went dark, all that would happen is that we would go back to profitability is the only metric and, you know, for investors and maximizing shareholder value would be the, like the way that they best understood that. Uh, does that, is that your assessment as well, Kate? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and in a way your response is super helpful because you know, what you actually said is what I personally believe to be true. And that is, you know, this is an organic ongoing process. It's not a something where you could look at an executive and be like, here's going to be a discrete outcome in three years. Here's going to be a discrete outcome in five years. Uh, that was one of the tactical mistakes that was made in transitionary states. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually think your answer is a great answer. I wanted to 
get that answer because I think it's important to understand that there's an immediacy in the corporate context that this isn't connected to. Yep. You know, um, I want to, uh, I think it's, I'm really glad that we're surfacing like here, what's the range? Like where, where, where do we place this decision? You know, um, and, and so I think that's helpful. The history, the connection that you're making, Kate, between what happened in the 1800s around um, income statements and uh, what's happening around uh, impact measurements. Uh, I would, I, I'm wondering what, what happened next to you in the story is that you either joined or started or became part of Common Approach. And um, what, what was that transition? Why is that important to you? Why is that where you landed next? Uh, and what is common approach? I realized that we haven't even like said, here's what common approach is. So um, great pivot, Tim. Thank you. Yeah. Lot, lots of runway there for you to pick an angle um, and, and, and talk next. So, okay. So the common approach is a project that I run funded by the government of Canada uh, that arose out of extensive stakeholder consultations with Canadians about how to sort out impact measurement for social purpose organizations. Social purpose organizations is a term we use to include charities, not-for-profits and social for-profit social mission businesses that might include B Corps or um, some for-profit cooperatives. Uh, Yes, and our target, we work for social purpose organizations that make a different difference by what they do in the world. And technically like found, private foundations are also social purpose organizations because they're charities, but they make a difference in the world by how they move money around. And so that's not really who we're trying to serve with the common approach to impact measurement. The main thing that the common approach to impact measurement is trying to create is a flexible standard for taking dissimilar highly relevant measures of impact, bespoke created relevant by each social purpose organization and roll those up to some kind of collective story that can be used to talk about what a sector is doing, what a network is doing or what a funder's portfolio is doing. And the, the thesis is this, the thesis is that when impact measurement is highly relevant, it reflects the voices of people whose lives are most affected which is a moral position that I and my team hold dear to my heart, that that is the true way we want to understand impact, is impact through the eyes of people whose lives are being affected. And it will also make it easier for organizations to have measures that help them improve and learn so that measurement becomes less bureaucratic, less of an exercise that's done for somebody else and more of informing their own work. Tim, this goes back to a thesis you had earlier about income statements. And I think there's a lot of truth there that when it's relevant, it's more useful and better for learning and innovation. And research supports that. Highly relevant measures is better for innovation and learning. Part of our thesis is that the reason social purpose organizations haven't really embraced relevant measures is that they're kind of useless after a while that you get a number like six. And six is relevant if you've got a trajectory that last year it was five and then it was four, or last year it was eight. But mostly you're left a little bit like, what do I do with this number? Is this a good number? How do I know if this is a good number? 
Uh, so there's that problem. Also, there is a myth in a lot of the impact measurement techniques that are out there that advise social purpose organizations on how to do their impact measurement. They will often say, start with your theory of change, craft something that's exactly specific to you and what you need. So I give that a two thumbs up as where we wanna be. But the reality is, is networks have multiple partners. Uh, each project is multiple partner. Each organization is in multiple networks. They have multiple funders. And it's unless you give organizations a tool to take this very bespoke product and connect it to their network, which all has different measurement of tool obligations, you're actually not giving them the tools to have a bespoke, highly relevant measurement system. So what we're trying to do is create this flexible framework that allows dissimilar indicators to aggregate so that you can talk to the network, the partners, the organization, the funders with these bespoke metrics. And the thesis of there again is that accounting can be a template for us. We've extrapolated from that plasticity of accounting what we call construct-based equivalence. So this is this idea that inventory is inventory and now we do a collective shrug. I would argue that in the past when people have tried to bring a standard to the impact measurement world, they've used what I would call measurement-based equivalence. It's the mm. same, it's exactly, I'm gonna take it expletive, the same. Whereas if plasticity says, eh, it can be different and still be the same, right? Like we all understand that we're basically in the same ballpark here. So you start this construct-based equivalence. What are the key constructs and how do you understand when indicators are the same enough to group within a construct and even be added up together? We are using the SDGs as our framework for constructs. Uh, in theory, this process could be used for any set of constructs. Like uh, we also have a Canadian index of well-being that has a different set of constructs. And um, some of our tools that people are using our technology to do have just like click of a button. Here's this portfolio represented by SDGs. Here's this portfolio represented by the Canadian index of well-being, right? So you can map to different constructs. And really then- quickly, Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. My mind is completely distracted. I'm going to give you one more sentence and then you points. can interrupt me. Over time, you create bounded flexibility. So you create limits on when things are the same and when things are not the same. And you can imagine like a box in which things are the same. And the goal, the work of the standard is to play with that box. Now I'm done. Got it. Um, I go, Tim. So My mind is, wow. In, in the, um, are you making these comparisons to like in accounting? Two literal accounting equivalencies, like, you know, in impact measurements, there's something like assets and something like liabilities, and then there are long-term and short-term. And so you're like actually trying to build, is that the construct or is the construct more like, um, if you're doing mentoring, then mentoring will be different in different areas. And the ages of mentors, like, if you're mentoring adults, that's a completely different thing than if you're mentoring kids. And so like, which of which equivalency are you moving towards? Does that the question make sense? second thing of what you said. So one of okay. our uh, sites where we're working is looking to finance our food future. They're a really cool company that's using impact investing and grant making to create a sustainable food economy. And one of the, so what is a sustainable food economy? So that has some composite elements such as, a, um, affordable food and appropriate food, appropriate food, which is affordable food, culturally relevant food, accessible food. And then, I've heard that from food banks before. That's fantastic. And then affordable food 
means different things in different contexts and quality food, you know, affordable quality food, quality means different things in different contexts. So you can have a, a community garden that is gonna have ways of understanding how they're contributing to affordable food. And you have a food bank that's gonna have ways of contributing to affordable food. And those measures are gonna be different, but you can actually add up and aggregate changes in affordability or the journey toward affordability that this whole portfolio is creating, even though they don't have the same measures of affordability. Got it, that's helpful, yep. That makes a ton of political sense to me. And I'm gonna connect it to a quote that you gave us um, on one of our previous conversations that I have since recycled in many, many places with attribution to you. And that is standards are communities, not documents. Um, and there's a lot implied in what you said, because at some point, when we get to that end product, we actually still have to measure food distribution, but the means by which we get to that measurement need to have those communities participating in what that standard means. Um, unfortunately, my other takeaway is, is math real? Uh, but... <laughs> Like that aside, I really want to dig into that because one of the conversations we've been on at Now It Matters has been this extended dialogue about what does it mean to have standards and own your own community's data as inserted into those standards. Uh, we touched on a little bit of this with one of our previous guests, Jamie Sample Ward, who's the end, uh, CEO of N10. And, you know, Amy's point was very much aligned to yours, where she said, look, something like the common data model or common approaches to measuring things don't always mean we're dictating how you do your work. What we're trying to do is find a liberation front in all of this so that as you do your work, things that you've ordinarily considered somebody else's property, such as your data, its migration, your framework, its application can become community property and also become shared property and shared ownership and not tied up into the very entities that we just spent the first half of this call discussing didn't have the right inputs in the first place to create the standards that we now consider immutable. 100%. That's a huge point, Kate. This is something I care very, very deeply about, uh, that the quality of a standard is increased by increasing the quality of the community. And that means, and it's a reflection of the quality of the community. And by quality, I don't necessarily mean like better or worse. I mean, who is there? How big is it? How well do they participate? How much do they feel they belong? How much do they, um, how interconnected are they? So I'm talking about the, the attributes of that community. And the more there is um, a diverse, engaged, empowered set of people that care about how to do impact measurement together, the more the standard is going to be a high quality standard than a small group of people in the room who master what they 
if you, you know, six, I would say in the history of attempts to create standards for impact measurement for the charitable sector, so I'm shifting from corporate to charity, the main idea has been to pull together a network, nah, 10 people, 15 people, 30 people in a room, work super hard for like three months, produce a document, funding ends, documents now on the internet or published if we're pre-1990, of which there are many examples, as if that was going to be the, the standard. And what happens is it's out of date in, in, in the wink of an eye, because the world changes. When it gets out to the real world, all these yeah, but moments come up. Yeah, but you don't mean I do it this way in this context, do you? And there's no means to keep it relevant and connected or the, yeah, but you totally missed my perspective. I am, um, you know, we talk a lot in Canada about uh, uh, reconciliation and we're, try, we're trying very hard at a month, it's a Canadian conversation right now uh, to decolonize a lot of our assumptions and impact measurement can be a very colonialist approach if you don't actively decolonize it. And so there's another place where a lot of the work that's been done in the past, you get this yeah, but from um, an indigenous uh, first nation saying, yeah, but this does not make sense in my world. So you really need that rich community committed and your first draft of your standard, you assume this is not done. This is your, your, your first failure. It's more like software iteration and it's gonna just change and change and change and change and change. It's a hundred year never ending journey uh, financial accounting is never done. It changes every year. Any ISO standard you pick up updates every two, three, five years. Mm. ISO and, standards are good. Are a good example in this framework. Yeah. So, uh, so the the quality of the community really is something that I care deeply about. And I didn't quite touch on your data ownership piece, but uh, we can go back to that. But the quality of the community is to me what will make a standard successful, both in terms of its adoption endurance and authenticity, like living up to its values. Did you know that when you first engaged Common Approach or has this been something that you've learned in the process of creating uh, the, the Common Approach community? Uh, I knew that as a design principle entering it. So that is, I am, I am actually paraphrasing a ton of sociologists that study standards. Uh, and I did a research paper on attempts to create standards for the charitable sector with the question of why different, why is it going to be different this time? Let's assume they were all smart and well-intended. Why do we not have a standard right now? And to me, I think the issue has been this idea of published is the end of the standard as opposed to the beginning of the community. Does any of that relate to methodology of distribution? In other words, like it was on paper before. That means that you're like physically mailing it to somebody and someone is like having to like open the envelope and you know, um, how much does it, how, how much less work or more efficiency is there in creating that community with kind of, you know, uh, internet infrastructure as, as the underpinning of it? I'm gonna answer your question slightly differently and I'll get us back to Tracy's point about data, which is really cool. So financial accounting standards emerged in the era of the printing press and a typical financial statement to this day has four state financial statements and then like 150 pages of notes. You're getting, you get a, a fat document 
of which three or four are the summary pages that most people pay attention to, and the rest is the fine print. It would, we are now in a digital era where the, the impact measurement standards we create don't have to follow that template. So that, that mm. template takes a lot of expertise. And I think one of the reasons a lot of standards didn't take off is that need to have that fine print is closely connected to the plasticity. If you don't want to have all the fine print, you got to make it more rigid, right? And producing that fine print is expensive and no one cared to learn it and it's a pain in the butt. But with data, we've got um, soft, a whole bunch of charities and not-for-profits becoming more digital. Thank you, COVID. Thank you, cost declining of software. A whole bunch, and you guys know this even better than I do, of software impact management software is emerging to help organizations track and manage the impact they're having in a way that did not exist 10 or 15 years ago. And then with these data models that are emerging, we're starting to have the ability to exchange or link that data, which gives us this power to roll up and tell a collective story without amassing PDFs or PowerPoints, or thank goodness, not paper, right? So I think you're right that there is a digital story that is enabling this moment that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Well, also, I mean, Kate, what I would say, I, I, I have personally been on a you know, sort of soapbox for the better part of a year or more around nonprofits, do you own your own data? And what does that ownership look like? And what are the conditions of ownership? And, and by the way, what are the conditions under which you will be satisfied owning your data? I am no longer satisfied with nonprofits spending a ton of money on data migrations. That's ridiculous to me. But actually what you have added to that kind of personal soapboxery is the notion that data ownership is a hallmark of strong community. And then it doesn't necessarily become about, you know, my model, your model, this thing, that thing. It becomes about how do we create the most durable community that's a participant in this model? Um, I love that. That's that's a gift that I'm really going to ruminate on. So thank you for talking about it as community standards, because I think a lot of the conversation in this world right now, because we're all IT people, IT people, because we're all geeks, is is rooted in the technical. And unfortunately, that technical bolts directly into the corporate because we're all beholden to somebody in the corporate world. Um this I'm is a different framing. First, I want to just give credit. The way you said that data ownership is part of a strong community, I'm quoting you on that one. I had not gotten there in my head yet. That is, you've just given that to me. You attributed it to oh. me, but when you said it was the first time that that light bulb happened. So uh, that's that's yours, and I will use that. I am. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. That's touching. I. Man, this conversation is uh, ticking all the right boxes for the old policy analyst in me because, you know, the way that I was trained was there were two models. There's sort of like that Saul Alinsky community organizing model, right? And then there's the outcomes-driven policy analysis where it's not really actually about what is written in the words of the policy. It's about the actual effects and outcomes that policy is driving. So don't measure the policy, measure the delta and measure the outcome that you're trying to achieve. 
Uh, and if you're not achieving the outcome, then you go back and adjust the policy, regardless of how well you think that policy is written. Uh, and that's still a hypothesis that I think applies to this meta discussion that we're having around like, you know, accounting and for what are we accounting? Uh, so thank you. That's really, truly insightful. Thank you. Kate, I want to ask, what are the questions we're not asking, mm. but you feel like you're like, you're dancing around this, but really what it is, is this thing over here. Um, Well, we haven't said it, but let's just, I don't, and I think we're, it's not that you didn't ask the question, it just hasn't come up, but how closely empowering a community of social purpose organizations to own their own impact measurement standard, to sort of own it as in like, engage with, participate, not as in like, I have the certificate of ownership, um, is connected to delivering and better understanding impact and that that relevance piece is connected to making people's lives better and i really am not a fan of impact measurement for the point of impact measurement and that is something i think we need to keep really central that, that the whole point of making it relevant is to make it useful and if it's not useful none of us should be doing this and then maybe I just connect this to an, the first half of our conversation, which is the urgency, I believe, in creating a standard for particularly charitable and very social purpose for-profit businesses, is that if this sector, the social purpose sector, doesn't come to the table with something credible soon, I think there is a risk that they will be invited to use what the for-profit world has created. So the for-profit world is moving at a rapid pace that is standardizing measures of social, environmental, and governance around certain indicators. And they, many of those people look to the charitable world as a dog's breakfast of measurement that just can't get its act together. And there is some risk that the solution that some policymaker or some coalition decides upon is look at, we've got it in IFRS. They've moved on to a sustainable accounting standards board and they've found these 140 things that are relevant. Dear nonprofit sector, this is now part of your 990. Did I get the form right for the IRS? Yeah, for US well stuff, yep. Yeah, yep. This, now it's part of your 990. You will all report on these metrics, off you go. And to me, that tells me, okay, that could happen. And if, if, if the charitable sector doesn't come up with a strong way to account for impact that's relevant and has the voice of the people whose lives are most affected, one possible result will be that we end up using the corporate solution for the, not, for the social purpose world. As an economist, what's so scary about that is that the the underpinnings of those two markets are completely inverse. So one is doing as little as you can for as much as you can charge. And the other is like doing as much as you can with as few, you like with the smallest dollar possible. And, and the for-profit world has chronically just assumed a business 
way of doing things and you know with their model in in mind which, which the whole point of it is to create margin so that you can like invest in those other changes which is not it, the only margin that exists is asking more from your staff and the opportunity cost of staff just inflating hours because they care about the mission and you know so it is it is i am very concerned about what you're saying because i think that is a possible outcome and that outcome feels like that could be 12 months away 18 months away 36 months away and like once it's there like it's it's done right like there you know um and so part of me wants to just say like what's important is to aligning to SDGs because what we actually need is for businesses to align to SDGs because all the program work, all of the USAID work that we're doing uh, all over the world, which is not being recorded adequately on the global scoreboard of SDGs is, is nothing compared to the effect of the corporate world that you know, if they started measuring ESGs in a way that could roll up to SDGs, we actually get a sense of like, hey, we're actually moving the needle. And to your point about communities, like these become symbols and communities rally behind symbols. And we've got 17 that we could rally behind. And so, you know, if it ends up in the tax document section, instead of the global scoreboard of 17 things that could make the world better and we don't have to argue about. Uh, that's just like the opportunity cost on that is so enormous and completely invisible to everybody except like 30 of us or something like it's, I think that's what's so concerning. Like who's got their eyes on this that even understands what we're talking about um, is, is just really uh, that that's what I mean, obviously it's, you know, thousands of us, not 30, but it is just not a collective conscious because the people that, to your point, the people that this is relevant to are the program directors that are out there creating that impact. And the last thing they wanna do is slow it down to measure something. 100%, um, yeah. And, and, and that's right, like we should be supporting that 100%. Like your system, we need this to help you do your job and an outcome is data that we can use uh, or that you can use and that will roll up to my point about incentivizing behind like this being useful information. So there's my soapbox. There's no question. I'm just going to put soapbox away now. Well, and you know. No, I mean, obviously, Tim and I have a lot of opinions about this stuff. I think, you know, that's a good thing because the more people that have an opinion about this mean that there are more people who are paying attention to the argument, as Tim's pointed out. I think I have that existential dread as well. And it was rooted in my very first semester in my master's program in grad school when, you know, the raging debate in policy analysis was, should nonprofits behave more like corporations? And I think, you know, I was like, I mean, it's like, should apples behave more like oranges? Maybe. I mean, but like, you, you know, the commonality here is their fruit. That's it. Right. So like, I have a question and I've asked this to every expert that I've been able to touch in the past year. What is, uh, Tim's talking about the SDGs. 
we're talking about a variety of global and systemic models of impact measurement and community participation. We're talking also about standards and the entities that hold these standards. You know, um, you had mentioned, uh, God, the one that starts with an I that just went right out of my head. I, I, was that? IFRS, the financial standards or IRS, the impact. No, like the, the, the little iterative, like, not not IEEE standards, but the other ones. Oh, okay. I, I, ISO. ISO. Thank you. You had mentioned ISO standards. You know, my question is, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, the United Nations, when it comes to the SDGs, <laughs> sometimes actually and sometimes perceptually, isn't really the entity in my mind that's going to like rally us around those standards. But the question I have is, is there an organization or a entity or an academic entity or a standards entity that either should be leveraged or created to hold this in a space where all of us who are beholden to something can act? Yes, there is an entity that should be created and possibly some that already exist and I don't know what they are. But yes, I really think that for the SDGs to serve as something that can be updated. So already, you, you, I'm sure you're aware of the critiques on the SDGs. I, I, I know you've heard these, right? So I'm not going to go into them now. But I, what those critiques could be summarized as, please do more. You haven't yes. yet done enough, right? And so you've got a whole bunch of people saying we can't possibly achieve the SDGs. And you've got these other people saying, please do more. And what that speaks to is you need something that's going to evolve and try and stay, I don't know what's that, at the 70 percentile of possibility where 30 people say it's not enough and 20 people say, you know, you got to kind of find your spot. And they, they're going to need to evolve. And so I do agree that if there was an entity that could do that, that would be amazing. Uh, because I'm really what we're talking time, about, yeah. like what we're talking about is a global collaboration. We're talking about, I mean, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, right? So like you look at the movie Pacific Rim, what did everybody do? They got together and they built giant robots to fight the monsters, right? <laughs> Sorry, Tim. I, no, I, I love it. I am so glad that's where we're at right now. I right? Love it. But totally like, agree. that's right the there. kind of like, actual yeah. entity that needs to get formed yeah. and and i and i do think that the level of academic participation in this as well as the level of political and corporate participation in this needs to be assigned governed and pulled together uh, and, the, and the new information that I've been really tracking in the past month or so has been around like the necessity of academic participation in this for all of the reasons that are rooted in this discussion today. Um, and, and that's new because I've always looked at it as sort of a corporate nonprofit partnership kind of thing. Uh, but those never succeed. <laughs> they never succeed because they're not grounded in anything other than what advances that very cynical comment I made around marketing. Right. So, yeah, thank you. That's it's validating and it's new information. So thank you. With um, just a couple minutes to go um, and Katie, thank you for thank you for just rolling with this conversation, which has just gone so everywhere fun. and is 
Yeah, uh, very. This should be a TED talk, a university <laughs> lecture, and replayed as like a here, you know, freshman year collegiate people learn some things about some things, you know, conversation. I really, that's I how this should be positioned. Kate, yes, I think your voice needs to be out there so much more saying this because you tie in uh, real, real things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that. I think that's really important uh, in your historical perspective and the rigor at which you are saying this needs to be approached, uh, which I think is missing from philanthropy, platforms, partners, technology, like um, we do need that voice of rigor in there. What's, what is left from you that you want to make sure? Yeah, parting words, gets, Kate. Get stated well, here. It's been very fun. You're very kind. As a researcher, we put a lot of value on the question more than the answer. So thank you for your insightful questions and uh, asking them and posing them. And that's keep asking and posing. I, I think it's awesome. So thank you. Thank, thank you for joining so us so very much. Thank you. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak. And you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.